Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are uh, in fellowship, ready to study the word, ready to focus. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come this evening to focus on your word that in the midst of a chaotic world where anything can happen and we are consistently being surprised these days with different uh, items of news that's not always uh, the best and we're not sure which way things are going to go. We know that your, your plan is consistent and that you're not surprised by these things and everything is going to uh, work together for good and everything is moving towards the historical uh, destiny that you have planned. Father, we pray that you would uh, encourage us with your word and that as we study your word, we might in turn be conduits of encouragement to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started, I want you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38. Now, most of you should be very much aware of the fact, unless you were just having too much barbecue, too much fun, too much sun over the Memorial Day weekend to realize that there was a, uh, an extremely significant uh, incident that happened off the coast of the Gaza Strip, off the coast of Israel, uh, I think it was early yesterday morning, when there were five ships that were trying to run the blockade. This blockade's been set up for since 2007. It's a blockade in conjunction with both Israel and Egypt to keep uh, contraband, more weapons, worse weapons out, and to keep the Hamas bottled up in the Gaza. And so this humanitarian group, alleged humanitarian group, actually uh, large components of this group that went in on these ships were part of a rather radical Islamic terrorist group out of, out of Turkey. And so this incident that occurred and was designed for the very purpose of provoking a response from Israel. There, it's, it's a propaganda move because if, if they were successful in what they wanted to do, it wasn't to get humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip. The purpose was to provoke a reaction from Israel where there would be uh, gunfire, where innocent people would be killed, and Israel would look bad in the eyes of public opinion, and then this then would just play into the hands of Hamas and the Palestinians. And we've read about that the last couple of days, and uh, tomorrow there's supposed to be a, another attempt. 
Now, what's interesting in the background of this is if you have uh, followed the history of modern Turkey, modern Turkey has been dominated by secularists for most of the 20th century and up until recently. In fact, when we were in Turkey a couple of years ago, there was a Supreme Court decision handed down that uh, made it uh, illegal for women to wear the head coverings. And then there was a big uh, demonstration, and the women were coming out wearing the head coverings and everything to show some sort of solidarity. So there's a uh, uh, mix-up going on in Turkey. Now, in western Turkey, in um, Istanbul and the those cities on the uh, western coast of Turkey, they're more Europeanized and they're more urban, and there's a lot more tourist traffic that goes through there. But if you're in central Turkey and eastern Turkey, from what Randy Price tells me, they are just about as primitive as they can possibly be, and they are much more lean much more towards uh, fundamentalist uh, Islam. So this is the tension in Turkey right now. In Turkey, there are certain powers that are pushing Turkey to be uh, more in alliance with Syria, Iran. Recently, Turkey and Brazil uh, decided they were going to give some cover to Iran in terms of uh, the uh, enriched uranium that they had. And so this this seems to be sort of an interesting play. And this this terrorist group that was push, push, trying to push Israel's buttons yesterday and this uh, uh, humanitarian uh, attempt to bring humanitarian aid in and run the blockade was basically a Turkish group. And most of the people that were hurt uh, from one report that I read were, uh, were Turkish. So now, just before I left the house to come to class tonight, there was an article that went up on the Internet from the Jerusalem Post that the fear that the IDF has right now is that the Turkish Navy will accompany these two boats that are supposed to try to run the blockade tomorrow. And uh, when when the IDF hit them, they hit them in international waters. So this could, of course, it's trying to provoke an international incident, and uh, Turkey's trying to make themselves look like they are, they can be a real leader in the Islamic world. So there's a lot of politics going on here. But in Ezekiel 38, in 39, we read of, a, of this end-time invasion that takes place in Israel. Now, I'm not doing newspaper exegesis here, and those of you who have been with me when we've studied this, that my tendency is to, and my inclination is to put Ezekiel 38 and 39 into the early part of the second half of the tribulation as sort of a prelude to the Armageddon campaign, because in this chapter it talks about this attack coming when Israel is living at peace in unwalled villages, and the tribulation begins when the uh, Antichrist, the peace who is to come, enters into a covenant with Israel uh, to secure peace for Israel, and there's peace for Israel, but that doesn't mean there's peace in the rest of the world as the Antichrist is expanding his operations and his kingdom, but he is guaranteeing peace in Israel and in the Middle East. So this concept of unwalled villages depicts Israel as living in security, living at peace, just at the and at the midpoint of the tribulation it seems that all of this begins to fall apart. That's my view. 
However, there are many others. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is one, Tim LaHaye, Tommy Ice, a number of others, who will put the, the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 either between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation or even towards the end of the church age. Now, there are others who put it in the first half of the, of the uh, tribulation, Mark Hitchcock, John Walbert, a number of others. So there's a lot of debate among dispensationalists as to when you locate this event because there are very few time markers in these two chapters so, so that you can peg it to other events in prophecy. But I just thought I would point out in light of current events what occurs here. Verse 2, Ezekiel is told, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, typically what you find in modern, uh, a lot of modern uh, exposition is that Rosh relates to the area that's north of the, of the, um, of the Black Sea, the area that's north of the Caucasus Mountains, which would be up into Russia. Same with Meshach, and there's attempts to tie the etymological roots of Rosh and Meshach to Russia and Moscow. And then it goes on to say um, in verse 5 to identify three other allies there as Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Persia is modern Iran, uh, Ethiopia, and Libya. Now, historically, though, these locations of Gomer and Togarma in verse 6 and also Rosh, Meshach and Tubal at the time of the writing or the time immediately following during much of the Old Testament period, those areas are located in what we call modern Turkey. So you have an alliance that's depicted here that would include Turkey, Iran, uh, Sudan, uh, Ethiopia here would be more modern Sudan rather than modern uh, Ethiopia and, and Libya. So this is an interesting alliance coming together, and uh, this is one of the things, if you follow Joel Rosenberg and his blog, he's one that's uh, firmly committed to uh, the fact that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is going to occur before, even before the end of the uh, present church age. So he sees this coming, and I don't know if he's right or not. I'm not, going to, I'm not trying to say this is it, but I just thought I would wake everybody up tonight and, and uh, get your attention, so maybe you'll watch the news with a, uh, a little more. Uh, biblical orientation tomorrow. Okay, with that, let's go to our passage in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and tonight we're going to come to a wrap-up of this, this last chapter. We've been focusing the last several lessons on the nature of the millennial kingdom, that the millennial kingdom, the idea of it being a thousand years is an idea that comes out of this passage because the uh, demarcation of 1,000 is mentioned some six times in this passage. So you can't get away from that. You can't um, spiritualize it, allegorize it, somehow get away from that. It is a clear statement. This is a 1,000 years uh, in length. And I've pointed out that there's really only three things we learn about this kingdom period from this chapter. One is the length. The second thing uh, that we learn is that the those who are resurrected from the dead and in their resurrection bodies will serve and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, during the time of this kingdom. And then that the third thing is that Satan is going to be bound during the uh, period of this kingdom. So we'll uh, just start in verse 4, kind of 
play catch-up, summarize a few things as we work towards the end of the chapter. Now, John says in expressing the next vision that he sees, he writes, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Now, that is a reference to those who uh, have been raised in the previous uh, resurrection. Judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Now, that's tribulation martyrs. The tribulation martyrs who did not worship the beast, he goes on to explain it further, they did not worship the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. That's the mark 666. Now, a lot of people ask, how is it that you have people that just wouldn't take the mark? Couldn't they take it by accident? Couldn't somebody have taken the mark and then become a believer? And I believe, and I, this is what I taught when we went through this, that things are going to be so clear, the spiritual issues are going to be so clear within the tribulation period that that's not going to happen. Those who are uh, who reject the claims of, the, uh, of Jesus as the Messiah, those who reject God are going to set themselves in concrete, as it were, in their negative volition. And this happens again and again and again in history. They make the negative decision. They set themselves in concrete, and it's not reversible. It's like Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and that was his decision. And subsequent to that, God intensified that. But Pharaoh was the one who had already made the determinative decision. So by the time you get to the midpoint of the tribulation, there's just going to be uh, things that are very obvious spiritually. This is when Satan's thrown out of heaven and a third of the, the angels or the demons come down with him. I believe they are visible on the earth. You're going to have angels, holy angels, elect angels flying through the air proclaiming the gospel. So this makes that environment seem strange. It sounds like science fiction, but that is the nature of the end of this period because it's going to pull together all of the streams of the angelic conflict, both the angelic side and the human side, into this uh, final judgment period because at the end it's when the demons are judged, the Antichrist is judged, the false prophet is judged, and Satan is sent to the abyss for a thousand years. So it, those who, uh, the believers will not take the mark. It will be so obvious. It's not just, oh, let's sign up for the mark. You know, you open up your, you know, Tribulation Times magazine and out pops a little card that says sign up for the mark and get your new credit card here. It's not going to be like that. There's going to be some sort of official uh, oath signing ceremony where you're swearing a spiritual allegiance to the Antichrist and it's clear what the demonic nature of that is going to be. Okay, so it's, it's going to be very clear that believers won't do it, unbelievers will do it. And so we're told that, uh, the martyred, those who are martyred of the tribulation, the tribulation dead, uh, are also have been resurrected at the end of the tribulation and they will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years in their resurrection bodies. So these are tribulation saints. The church, of course, has already been resurrected back with the rapture. And then there have been uh, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints occurs also at the end of the tribulation. And then verse 5 says, But the rest of the dead 
did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, the, this is the first resurrection refers back to verse 4, not to the first part of verse 5. So you have a contrast. The but at the beginning of verse 5 shows you that there's a contrast between the rest of the dead who don't live until the thousand years are finished and those who are resurrected at the beginning of the tribulation period. And it's that contrast that's important because those who do not get resurrected in the first resur- as part of the first resurrection are then in the they are those who will experience the second death and we'll see that in the coming verses now just a chart here to remind you that you have to distinguish between the different judgments and the diff- different resurrections actually that should be five resurrections I've added, added one it's normally not distinguished but we'll put it in there the church age ends with the rapture of the church or the resurrection of the church. So that's our first resurrection, following the resurrection of Christ. So Christ is the first fruits. That's resurrection one. The rapture is a resurrection out from the dead. You have the word exonastasis in Philippians uh, chapter 3, and uh, this indicates that the rapture of the church that's followed by the tribulation period, and then Jesus Christ returns to the earth with the church to defeat the Antichrist, false prophet, and Satan. This is all part of the, uh, covers the whole period of the first resurrection. It has different groups, different segments with, within it. So we have the first resurrection that is composed of Christ, then the second Stage of that is the rapture. The third stage just involves the two witnesses. And then uh, the fourth and fifth, that's where I've distinguished them, the Old Testament and the tribulation saints. So that covers the our five resurrections, the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection at the rapture, the resurrection of the church, the two witnesses, third, Old Testament saints, fourth, and tribulation saints, fifth. Now, in terms of judgment, the uh, Bema seat takes place during the tribulation. This is the judgment seat of Christ. Then following the return of Christ to the earth, there's a period of time, the 75-day interval, where we have several different judgments that take place. So first of all, we have the casting of the Antichrist into the lake of fire, then casting the false prophet into the lake of fire. Then we have the... Uh, Satan is just uh, incarcerated in the abyss. Then you have the surviving Gentiles are judged at the uh, sheep and goat judgment. The surviving Jews are judged at that time. Old Testament saints are judged at that time. And tribulation saints are judged at that time. Then the millennial kingdom begins, the thousand-year reign of uh, Jesus as the uh, Jewish Messiah upon the earth, on the throne of David, establishes that kingdom. And then you have the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of all of the unsaved that takes place at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom. At the end of the millennial kingdom, there is a uh, the, the judgment of the great white throne and the unsaved dead are judged. Satan is judged, and he is then cast into the lake of fire. 
at which time you have the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, and we go into the eternal state. So the millennial kingdom is phase, I mean, yeah, the millennial kingdom is phase one of the eternal state. So in verse six we read, blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So at first you have this beatitude. This is uh, one of a number of beatitudes stated in the book of Revelation. And here the emphasis is on the uh, first resurrection, and those who are in the first resurrection are not uh, involved in the second death. So the, there are other passages that we can go to in the, um, in the uh, New Testament that demonstrate this. And usually some of these passages just talk about resurrection at, in a more of a general sense, not talking about uh, specifics. So you have John 5.29 talking about they will come forth in the future, those who, uh, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. But those don't take place at the same time. The resurrection of life is the first resurrection, and the resurrection of judgment, it refers to the second resurrection related to the great white throne judgment. This is also stated in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, that is, those who are the righteous, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there's a distinction there between these two resurrections. The first relates to the first resurrection of Old Testament saints and their role, and the second is the uh, second resurrection. Now, the fact that there are different elements and different segments to the resurrection is seen in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. This is a passage dealing with the importance of resurrection, starting with the importance of Christ's resurrection, understanding that, and then developing that uh, further in terms of its impact on the body of Christ. Paul states in verse 23, but each one in his own order. And that word order, it translates the Greek word tagma, which means to arrange in an orderly Manner. So it is sometimes translated troops. It's sometimes translated a band, as in a band of, of outlaws or a band of soldiers. Uh, sometimes it's translated a cohort. And in the New Testament has the idea of order, sequence, or in one's proper order or turn. So this has the idea that each resurrection, each group comes in a specific order. And there are... Uh, several different orders that take place. The first is the, as I pointed out, that you have the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits, then the resurrection of the church is the second resurrection, the resurrection of the two witnesses is the third resurrection, the resurrection of the uh, Old Testament uh, saints, and the resurrection of the uh, tribulation martyrs make up the fourth and fifth. And all of that together makes up the the first Resurrection. Verse 6 also uses another interesting word here, and that is the word that is translated part. Now, when we see that English word part, we think of something like a, like a part of a whole. 
So you yesterday you got a piece of pie, and that piece of pie was a part of the whole, I hope. Some of you may have been the whole thing. I know <clears throat> it looks that way from the way some of you came waddling in here tonight, but... Um, that's not the idea in this in the Greek word. The idea here in meros has to do with a share or a portion of an inheritance. This is the same word that the prodigal son used when he approached his dad and said that he wanted his inheritance, his portion or share of the inheritance now. So this is a word that was used in uh, technical legal literature, what we would call wills, in order to indicate the share or the portion of the inheritance that went to each individual. So if we retranslate this, blessed and holy is he who has an inheritance or a share in terms of inheritance in the first resurrection. So that is just a blessing statement there. It's not, ex- it's not saying that those who don't have an inheritance, those who forfeited it because they lost everything at the judgment seat of Christ, that wouldn't make sense. Remember the order of events. The rapture occurs. Okay? Every church-age believer is in an, just a, a blink of an eye, a wink of an eye, a 64th of a sec- second, instantly taken to be with the Lord in the air. Every believer, whether you're a mature believer, immature believer, obedient believer, disobedient believer, whether you're a complete failure in the Christian life or whether you've been a remarkable success, every believer is taken instantly in the rapture to be with the Lord in the air. Following that, you have the judgment seat of Christ. It's at the judgment seat of Christ where rewards are distributed. And there are those who are going to have rewards, and yet we're told there are others who have no rewards. Everything is burned up. That's, the, that's just the metaphor that's used there for the evaluation process to expose that which was done that was good. And everything is burned up, but there are those who are going to have nothing left for which to be rewarded, yet they will enter as through fire. That's what the text says. So that means that these believers who have nothing but their justification get into heaven and they will be in the kingdom, but they're not going to have a share of the inheritance related to rewards or position or responsibility in the kingdom. So they won't be blessed and holy. This is just a beatitude here. This is just a statement that those who were rewarded are praised by God and they are blessed in terms of their position in ruling and reigning with Christ. It's not saying anything about those who didn't get anything at the judgment seat of Christ. And then it goes on to state about them that over them the second death has no power. Now that has implications for what we'll read in the next chapter. What that indicates is the second, it's not that they, it's saying well that they could have ended up in the lake of fire, but because of their obedience they're not going to be in the lake of fire what we'll see is that the rewards that the uh, the believers who failed could have uh, could have received are going to be burned up. Those rewards are going to be burned up in the lake of fire. They're not burned up in the lake of fire. The rewards are burned up uh, in the lake of fire. So that's the significance of this second statement. Over such, the second death has no power. 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the whole focus on verse 6 is stating positively, uh, making a positive statement about the rewards and the position and privilege that that successful believers will have in the millennial kingdom. It's not saying anything about those who don't have any rewards, and it's not saying anything about the lost. That's not the focus. It's just talking about those who have uh, received rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Don't make the illogical, irrational uh, move, commit a logical fallacy, and think that if it says X about uh, the group that is uh, that, it, that is rewarded here, then that means non-X is true about the group that isn't rewarded. See, that's a real slippery sleight of hand that you'll see in a logical fallacy. Just because this group is rewarded, it doesn't mean that everybody else is destined for the second death. Okay? Unbelievers are clearly destined for the second death. And the rewards that would have been distributed to the uh, those who were failures in their spiritual life, those rewards will be burned up in the in the second death, but they won't be. So there's no loss of salvation here, and there's no uh, work salvation or anything of, of that nature. Well, we the other thing we learn here is that the first death is bodily, is a physical bodily resurrection. I mean, I mean, the, the first death, rather, when they die physically. We die physically and we go to the grave. The second death is also a physical bodily death. This is indicated in Matthew 10:28, when Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. That would relate to a believer. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, hell here being a term in refer, it, it's it, it referred to Gehenna or Hades, but it has application to the lake of fire because those who are those who are lost spend eternity in the lake of fire, and it is a physical bodily pain that goes on and on forever and ever. So that's the significance here is the second death is like the first death. It is also a physical bodily pain that goes on forever. Now, verse 7 shifts into the next paragraph. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is the sand of the sea. So the term here we have is a a future future tense here when the thousand years are loosed, or now when the thousand years have expired, then Satan will be, future tense, will be loosed or released uh, from his prison. And he will, and this is the first time you have the use of this term prison in relationship to the abyss. So that's its function here. Uh, the abyss is, is seen to function as a, as a prison. It's the same term that's used in 1 Peter 3.19 for the spirits or demons during the, their activity during the time of Noah, that because of that they were disciplined and punished and placed in the abyss as a place of being in a prison in Philake for the Greek in 1 Peter 
So at the end of the thousand years, Satan's released, and he goes out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Now, who are these four na- these uh, uh, four nations referred to? Are these nations referred to here? They're referred by the name Gog and Magog. Now, where did we just read that? We just read those terms in Ezekiel 38 and 39. See, there are some people, some dispensationalists, who think that the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle is the same as this battle, which takes place at the end of the millennium. But there's a distinction. In, in this verse, the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, that's a phrase referring to the entire earth. And so the nations throughout the earth that gather in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ during his reign are referred to as Gog and Magog. Now, if you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog isn't referring to all the nations. It's referring to just a small group. So there's a number of other differences between Ezekiel 38 and 39 and this particular uh, rebellion. So this rebellion is a reference to simply the end-time rebellion, and the term Gog and Magog is simply a technical term to describe the nations that in the end of the millennial kingdom will come together to attack Jerusalem, and it's probably because in the, they, they imitate in the same way the nations in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 attack who are focused on attacking and destroying uh, Jerusalem in that, in that war, in that attack on Israel. So Satan is going to lead this rebellion. Now remember, you had all of these uh, survivors from the tribulation who did not receive a, 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 a resurrection body. They still had a mortal body. They still had a sin nature. They got married. They produced children. Those children are born with sin natures. And each one of those children born during the tribulation period, I mean during the millennial period, have to make a decision as to whether they are going to trust in the work of Jesus the Messiah on the cross, dying for them and paying the penalty for their sin. Now, throughout history, you've had a problem that could be blamed on somebody else. Well, you know, Lord, I would have believed in Jesus except Satan was blinding me to the truth of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. You know, Lord, I, I would have believed in the gospel, except you know, those Calvinists taught me that I was totally depraved, and that meant that I was so blind to truth that I, even if I'd wanted to, I couldn't have believed in him. Right? We've all heard that. My question is, if the Calvinist is right, and total depravity means that you're so blinded by sin that you can't see or understand or appreciate enough truth to even respond with positive volition, then why does Satan need to blind your mind to the truth again? I mean, if total depravity truly blinds you so that you can't exercise positive volition, then why does Satan need to blind you to to the truth? But 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this age is blinding the minds of men to the truth of the gospel. So that means that apart from that activity of Satan, that people can see the truth of the gospel and thereby uh, thereby res- respond. 
Well, the point in the in the uh, millennial kingdom is that with Satan locked away in the abyss, they're not going to be able to come up with any of these phony excuses for that's what they are. Ultimately, it always comes down to individual personal volition. They can't blame it on Satan. They can't say the devil made me do it. They can't blame it on demons. They can't blame it on uh, Adam's sin, and I was totally depraved, so I couldn't see the truth. They can't blame it on anything. They're left without any excuse whatsoever. So verse 8, uh, <clears throat> so in this, this passage we see that there's this deception that occurs at the end of the age, and all of these uh, individuals that rejected Jesus as Messiah during the tribul- during the excuse me during the millennial period all follow Satan and there's this enormous revolt that takes place. Now verse nine says that they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now everywhere else in Scripture that you have this phrase the beloved city, this is a reference to the earthly Jerusalem. So I don't see this as a as a reference to the New Jerusalem, but this is a reference to, it's not a reference to the church, it is a reference to Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom as the centerpiece of the worship of God on the earth. Remember last time we studied that this is where the new temple, the Millennial Temple is going to be built. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ takes up his residence at that temple, this is where God is worshipped in that temple, and this is the focal point of their assault against God. And so we have uh, passages such as Ezekiel 38.12, which calls Jerusalem the center uh, of the world. We have other passages in the Old Testament that also indicate this as being the center of, uh, of Israel's kingdom on the earth in passages like Isaiah 24, uh, 23, Passages like Zechariah 14, 9 through 11, and this is the location of the Messiah's throne. So they, that's the direction of the assault. They will surround the camp of the saints. So once again, Israel is going to be the focal point of another major military campaign that's really an attack on God, and God is going to destroy them. He's not going to pull anybody, use a human army or use uh, the church or anybody else. And at the end of verse nine, we read, "And fire came down from heaven, came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them." So they are just going to be incinerated and vaporized on the spot. And God is going, and this brings true human history or this earth's history to an end. And then in verse ten, we read of the judgment, final judgment of Satan, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I don't want to get off and get distracted by this, but there is a doctrine out there called soul annihilation. And there are others that take other views that attempt to argue that God is a good God. And God is a loving God, and a loving, good God would never put his creatures into an eternal punishment of this level of pain forever and ever. That, that would, what, what, he would be a terrible God. We just can't worship a God like that. Well, who's, where'd you get that definition of God? 
Are you going to go to the Bible for your definition of God, or are you going to make it up out of your own, uh, your own sin nature and your own emotion? Uh, you know, we have trouble with things like that, of course, but we have to understand the justice, uh, justice of God and what is, what is taking place here. Just look at the, let's just look at the details of the text. First of all, we have the devil who's cast into the lake of fire. Who's there? It's already got two occupants, the Antichrist and his roommate, the false prophet. And they've been there for a thousand years, so they obviously have some sort of body that is not going to be destroyed by all of the fire that's in the lake of fire. And they have been experiencing all of the excruciating pain associated with that for a thousand years. So they're there for an extremely long time, and now the devil's going to join them. And then the text says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the compound use of the, of the phrase day and night, that merism there that includes uh, the entire 24-hour day as we speak about it, and then that is expanded by forever and ever, reinforces the idea that this is a never-ending punishment. Now, why is it that God is going to bring about such a horrible, horrible punishment on those who have rejected him? Now, this, I think, is a very important question to understand because there are always going to be times when we are, when we're witnessing, when we're talking to people who just have heard things about Christianity or they're resistant or whatever it is, and they're going to say, well, how can a good God allow these evil things to happen? I mean, that's the basic question is how can a good God let his creatures be involved in this kind of a punishment forever and ever? How can a good God allow so many uh, Ethiopians to starve in a famine? How can a good God allow the, the genocide in Darfur to go on forever and ever? How can a good God allow uh, his people to be destroyed in the, in the ovens of Auschwitz? And that question always comes back to question the, the goodness and the justice of God. Now, what I like to do is not answer that question right away. We all have that tendency, oh, I have the answer, call on me, I'll tell you what the truth is. And we run into the answer too fast and in too much of a hurry, and we let the other person sort really, they've already set the agenda in the terms of the argument. And what I would rather do is just stop a minute and, and say, okay, <clears throat> you don't think that the Christian God who is uh, assumed to be just and righteous, that, that that's really fair of him to let these things happen. And so you're going to reject Christianity and you're going to reject the God of the Bible because you think that he is unfair and unjust. So you can't explain the existence of evil. You, you reject the Christian explanation of the existence of evil. So what's your explanation for the existence of evil. You tell me what your explanation is before I'll tell you what, what, what mine is. And that puts the shoe back on their foot because ultimately, and if you're, if you're good and you can work the conversation, which we always can, I mean, we, it's hard to do that. People don't always respond in set ways. But the idea is to make somebody realize 
that that where do you even get the idea of good and evil if you don't have if you don't presuppose a God who is absolutely righteous? Where are you going to come up with the idea of good and evil? Society can't come up with that. His, the history of mankind can't come up with that because what's one person's good is another person's evil, and what one one person's evil is another person's good. So where are you going to get this idea uh, of, of good and evil to judge the Christian God and say, well, wait a minute, he can't really be a good God. Well, how do you even have a right to use absolute value terms like good and evil if you have rejected the only source of absolute good and absolute evil before you even begin the discussion. You don't have a right to that term. So I'm not going to let you talk about good and evil unless, first of all, you can show that you have a right to use that term. It's like that that creation joke about the uh, the scientist who... Who, who went to God and said, "God, we really don't need you anymore to create life. We've created life in the in, in the uh, in the laboratory, and we don't need you anymore. So we're, you can just you can just leave now, and we'll take care of everything." And God said, "Well, I'm so glad that you finally figured out how to create life. Why don't we have a little contest to see who uh, who can create life the fastest?" And the uh, arrogant scientist said, well, sure, sure, I'll, I'll take the challenge. And God said, okay, well, since I issued the challenge, I'm going to let you go first. And so the scientist said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And he reached over to pick up some dirt, and God said, no, 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 no. You have to make your own dirt first. See, the point is that they, people who start off saying, how can you have a good God who lets bad things happen he, he doesn't, he's rejected God as an absolute category for good and evil to begin with. Where does he even get these ideas of good and evil? How can he even talk about good and evil when he's already rejected the source of that, those values? So the, the thing is that only a Christian has the right to talk about a real resolution to the problem of evil. Because we have a God who has contained evil historically. And when he judges Satan at this judgment, this is the end of evil. Unbelievers and Satan, false prophet, the Antichrist, are confined to the lake of fire. Evil is then wrapped up in a package and put in the furnace, and that's the end of evil. And evil is resolved. If you're an atheist, if you're a secularist, if you're an agnostic, if you're um, whatever you are, an idealist, positivist, whatever, you can't resolve. Ultimately, you have no way of resolving the problem of evil. No Hindu can resolve the problem of evil. He just says it doesn't exist. Christian science is the same thing. It just doesn't exist. So you, you either deny it or you redefine it. Or only in Christianity do you actually resolve it and deal with it. The other thing about it is to recognize that God set things up in the Garden of Eden with a simple test. And the simple test was whether or not Adam and Eve would obey him. And there was just a simple test. Don't eat from this one tree. You can eat from every other tree. I've given you thousands of options. Every flavor you can imagine And some you can't even imagine. They're all there, 
Everything is there. It's good for you to eat, but you just can't eat from this one tree. Now, I could ask you all to list the worst sins that you can think of, and eating a piece of fruit is not on most of your lists. But that's what the sin was. Now, as a result of eating that piece of fruit, which symbolized their disobedience to God, the result of that was that sin entered into human history. It changed botany so that now the earth was going to produce thorns and thistles, which it wouldn't have produced before. It changed the makeup and structure of animals so that uh, uh, all the animals were designed to eat from the grass of the field, and now they're going to eat one another, so that's going to change your dental structure and change your uh, metabolic structure, and all these things are going to change. So nature, creation, the physical material world changes because of Adam's sin. And not only that, it brings in all of those wonderful uh, things that we've come to enjoy in history like genocide and famine and uh, natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes. Uh, all of these things are all the result of the, that little bitty innocuous act of eating a piece of fruit. So when you factor in that Satan's rebellion and the rebellion of any creature, no matter how small and innocuous the act is, is going to produce these horrendous, horrible consequences, then eternity in the lake of fire is a rather mild punishment for all of the suffering and all of the horrors that they have brought into all of human history because of negative volition to God. And so God is thoroughly just in his punishment because everyone has been given a an opportunity. In fact, Romans 1 says that the evidence, the nonverbal revelation of God's existence in his creation is so clear that everyone is without excuse. No one can say, oh, God, I just didn't have enough information. God says there's more than enough information. Look at all these millions and millions of people who responded to simply the the nonverbal revelation in in general revelation in the creation and wanted to know more about the creator. They all got saved that way. You rejected it. You had enough information. You're without excuse. So they're going to go up on the uh, attack, the saints of God. God's going to destroy them. And then Satan, the devil, is going to be cast into a lake of fire along with the where the beast and false prophet are, and they're tormented forever and ever. Then in verse 11, we have the great white throne judgment. It is white because this is a depiction in Scripture of holiness and righteousness, such as Jesus appeared to, with white hair uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 1. It is, a, uh, it is the symbol of righteousness and holiness. So God, there's a, uh, again, you have another vision from John. He sees a great white throne and him who sat on. This is always God the Father. God the Father is the only one who is stated to sit on a throne at any time in the book of Revelation. So he is sitting on the throne from whose face, that is from the, because his face exposes righteousness. It's like when, when Isaiah in Isaiah uh, 6 sees the throne of God, he can't help but fall on his face and grovel because the, the brilliant holiness of God exposes the sin and the unworthiness of the creature. And so as God is, the Father is revealed here on the great white throne, 
everyone seeks that has rejected him and rebelled from him seeks to flee from him, but there's no place for them to hide. The omnipresence and omniscience of God means no one can hide from his justice. Then in verse 12, we see the details of the judgment. John says, I saw the dead. Now, this is all of the dead unbelievers. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. It didn't matter what their position was on the earth, whether they were rich or poor, whether they were powerful or whether or not, all are standing before God. And books are open, multiple books. And another book was open, which is the book of life. So on one side, you have the books of works, actually lists all the, all the works of every individual. And on the other side, you have the book of life. And the dead are judged according to their works. Now, this isn't talking about a works salvation. This, these are unbelievers. They're not saved. They don't have the one most important thing you have to have to get into heaven, and that is perfect righteousness. So that's the standard is perfect righteousness. What God is going to do is evaluate them on the basis of all their works add it all up, and to see if they have enough good works, enough good to equal the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, let me give you the the word works here doesn't mean sin. In fact, if you do a word study on the the Greek word for works, which is ergon, if you do a word study, you will find that it's, it's a neutral word. It doesn't necessarily mean good or bad. You have to put an adjective in front of it to know whether they're talking, the text is talking about good deeds or bad deeds. So all this is talking about is their works. Some works are positive. So you have a plus three and a plus seven and a plus 12. Some are sins. Well, the sins aren't added in. Why? Sins are paid for at the cross. So you add up all of their good deeds, and it all has to equal $10 billion. And the most anybody gets is maybe 852 Everybody falls short of God's standard. So they are sent to the lake of fire because they just don't have the right kind of righteousness. They rejected the perfect righteousness of Christ, which comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And so they are sent to the lake of fire because they lack Righteousness, and they're still spiritually dead, by the way, because they were never because they never trusted in Christ, because they were never justified, they were never regenerate, so they are dead in their trespasses and sins still. So they're they're judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books. Then verse thirteen and fourteen actually, or verse thirteen actually gives you gives, gives us information that occurs before the judgment. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. And again, we have it, uh, each one according to his works. Does he have enough good to meet the perfect standard of God? And they can't unless they believed in Christ. Then verse 14 we read, Then the death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So now we have the second death defined. The second death is the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the destiny of Satan, the false prophet, the Antichrist, and all unbelievers in human history. Because verse 15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, there are many who believe, and I'm, I think this is a good explanation, 
is that because Jesus Christ paid the sin for everybody, that everybody's name is provisionally put in the book of life. But if you die and you don't trust Christ as your Savior, then your name is eliminated from the book of life. And if your name is not found written there at the great white throne judgment, then you're cast into the lake of fire. Now let's take a look at what's, what's involved here. We have the appearance of the great white throne, and then Hades, which is made up of the former area of paradise, which is now in heaven. That's all believers, Old Testament saints. Then there was torments, which was the place of all of the uh, unbelievers from the Old Testament. And all, all, all New Testament, everybody who's an unbeliever dies, goes there until the judgment. It's the holding tank for eternity in the lake of fire. And then it's, there's also the prison of the fallen angels, according to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude 6. They are all given up. So each one stands before the great white throne. And <clears throat> the only reason they're there is because their name is not in the book of life. If your name was in the book of life, you've already been resurrected or you were get at the end of the uh, at the end of the millennial period then you were given a resurrection body so they stand before uh the great white throne their names not in the book of life uh they are judged according to their book of works and they get sent to the lake of fire now let me show you put this one other chart here to explain the whole issue of righteousness because God is absolutely righteous and absolutely just he can only have fellowship with creatures that qualify in terms of the same level of righteousness. Now, the problem that every human being has is that we lack righteousness. We're minus R. Uh, Isaiah states that, Isaiah 64, 6 that says that uh, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Now, Jesus Christ went to the cross, but as the God-man, he's perfectly righteous, so that all of our sins are applied to him. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that he who uh, knew no sin was made sin for us or on, as our substitute so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our sins are imputed to him on the cross so that when we believe in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is then imputed to us. Now, we're still sinners. But what God looks at is the legal imputation of righteousness. We're not saved because we do good things. We're saved because Christ was perfectly righteous. That's the standard for getting into heaven. We're declared righteous. After we're declared righteous, we're regenerated. Now, all this happens simultaneously, but... Uh, that's the logical order. We're justified, then we are uh, regenerated. And then God's blessing to us comes in reference to his righteousness and not our righteousness. Now, one other passage just to remind you, sin for everybody was paid for at the cross, so it's not an issue at the great white throne. In Colossians 2.13, we read, You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him. Now, the key idea here is that phrase, he has, made, he has made us alive together with him. That first part, being dead in your trespasses and sins, is really a temporal participle that should be understood to read, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made us alive together with him. So when we were spiritually dead, he made us alive together with him. And then you have another participle translated, having forgiven you all trespasses. But that participle translated having should be understood to mean because he forgave or because he canceled all the legal guilt of our trespasses. Now, when did he cancel the legal guilt of our trespasses? This refers to everybody. He did it, verse 14, when he wiped out the handwriting of requirements of the certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us. When did he do that? He has completely lifted it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. See, it didn't happen when you trusted in Christ. It happened when he died on the cross. That's when the debt certificate of debt against you got dealt with was at the cross, not when you got saved. So because sin for everybody was dealt with on the cross, sin isn't an issue at the great white throne judgment. John 3.18 makes it very clear. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he's still a sinner. Is that what it said? No. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, if you believe in Jesus, then you receive his righteousness. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't receive his righteousness. That's the issue. It's not about sin at all. It's about whether or not you've believed in Jesus, had faith for justification, which we refer to for justification by faith alone. Now, two questions that come up, or basically one question that comes up, is what about statements in the New Testament that says that a person can die in their sin? People ask that. So, well, you're saying that sin isn't an issue at the great at the uh, great white throne, but people who don't believe, Scripture says they can die in their sin. John eight twenty four, Jesus says, uh, if you don't uh, believe in me, you'll die in your sins. First Corinthians fifteen seventeen, Paul said, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Well, if you look at how that's used in Ephesians 2, 1, that we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins, it's very clear that this phrase, in your sins, is an idiom for spiritually dead. And besides, in your sins doesn't mean for your sins. In your sins is a totally different preposition. It's preposition in, not for your sins. So you can die in your sins because you're still spiritually dead. That's why you show up at the great white throne judgment. You're spiritually dead, and now you're going to be eternally dead in the lake of fire. But the solution is simple, and that is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that brings us to the end of chapter 20, and next time we'll come back into the uh, 20, chapter 21, and we'll get into the new heavens and the new earth. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be uh, encouraged by these things, giving a glimpse of our future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom and also to be reaffirmed in our understanding of the gospel that it's by faith alone in Christ alone and that Jesus paid the sin penalty in full for everyone so that the issue is no longer sin. The issue is faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And we pray this in his name. Amen.